Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I mean, the otherness is important, I think, in relationships. Otherwise, you become like really enjoyable furniture. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Dear Shandy, listeners. Hello, Andy. Hello. How are you today? Doing okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited. You're very red. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like wearing red to talk about today's topic, even though I feel like our guest, it's not just one topic because there's just some, I actually have it divided into four topics. Wow. So it's a very hot topic. (laughs) It's a very hot, hot topic, meaning I had to wear red. I had no choice in the matter. I understand. So our guest today, she is a best-selling ghostwriter and coach for Scribe Media. She has walked hundreds of authors along the path to writing, editing, and publishing their life's work, which I think sounds so meaningful and lovely. And she has ghostwritten books on everything from memoir to psychology, sex ed, entrepreneurship, psychedelics, finance, and futurism. Mm, eclectic selection please make me love me is her memoir and first book with her name on the cover and she can be found on instagram at emily gindle g-i-n-d-l-e love that and the website emily where i promise you will devour her blog entries as i did Emily Gindelsparger, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Charlene. Thank you, Andy. It's so great to be here. So I have to tell you how much I enjoy this book before we get going. It is some of the most vivid and at times like almost painfully, brutally honest writing about emotion and self-talk. And I think it'll be really relatable for our listeners because a lot of our Shandies are empaths. They are deeply introspective. They are sensitive. Uh, whenever I talk about having imposter syndrome, they're like, me too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think you'll be in good company here. So first of all, I want to start a little differently than we normally do in our Hot Topic episodes by asking you, when someone learns that you've penned a memoir about your experiences with open relationships and discovering that you're queer and dating women, what is the first question you're asked or the most common question? <laughs> Uh, you know, honestly, I usually get a lot of radio silence after I roll that out. I think it's just a lot and people find it really overwhelming. <laughs> um, yeah, I get a smattering of different questions. You know, sometimes it's about like, usually it's around how to handle the emotional component of having multiple serious relationships in your life. Mm. As in jealousy? Yeah, I'd say jealousy is probably the top one. There's also lots of some people get really curious about the logistics, like how do you how do you find additional partners? How do you set up the rules in each partnership? You know, it it always kind of depends on on that person's mindset. But the questions that they ask tell you a lot about them and and what they're interested in, for sure. Mm -hmm. So true. Yes. And it's funny you say that because we always poll our shandies. I I try not to spoil who our guest will be, but I describe 
you know, why they're joining us. So I said, you know, I described the memoir and said, send your questions. And we tried to sort of funnel them down to the most common themes. And those were the two most common ones. Like, how do you embark on that lifestyle? And second of all, how do you handle it? So jealousy is topic number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds great. Yes. <laughs> In chapter one, you write about the crippling pain of jealousy, probably better than I've ever read described, honestly. And I mean, even the cover, look at this, the pins and the heart. Mm, It's just, it's so vivid. Then in chapter seven, so a mere six chapters later, you're helping your boyfriend craft flirty texts to Casey, the woman he's dating. Was there a pivotal moment where you went from jealous to non-jealous? Yeah, yeah, there kind of was. And it's, it's funny because talking to my partner about this, he was very perplexed that it could be one moment. I think for some people, it's a really, really long journey and a lot of evolution that happens. For me, that evolution happened pretty quickly um, in that I, we were both lucky when we opened up our relationship. We had a, a network of friends around us already who were in multiple relationships. We also were in contact with a local like polyamory group in our town. And so there was just like a lot of, a lot of support and a lot of resources. And so when we decided to, well, when my partner first came to me and said he had a crush, my first reaction was just to like totally crumble in terrible feelings that he was going to leave me, that I was never going to be good enough, that the person he had a crush on must have something going on that's way better than me. And so like, we've wasted all these years together. I mean, it was just, the spiral Mm -hmm. was just endless. And luckily I got pointed to some resources around reading on the emotional uh, journey of going through polyamory. The first blog that I read was uh, this blog called More Than Two, which I think is a free resource that still exists out there. And there was a post on there about how jealousy is not its own emotion. It's usually a, like a, like a secondary or complex emotion. And if you get curious about your jealousy, you'll discover that there are contributing emotions that lie underneath it. And once you know, you know, whether it is insecurity that's driving you or fear of some kind, like once you understand what's underneath the jealousy, then you can work on that thing because working on the jealousy as an emotion, trying to get that to go away or trying to transmute it somehow, I'm not convinced that would ever work. Mm, But you're just trying to treat the symptom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so for me, when I got curious about my jealousy, I realized that the whole reason I was jealous, like all these fears about my partner leaving me or somebody else being better, it all boiled down to me not feeling like I had my own sense of self-worth. And once I pinpointed that, I was like, okay, great, because that's not even my partner's problem. That's not our relationship problem. That's my problem. And that's something that I need to start really getting, uh, really spending time with myself and really getting clear on where is my own center of self-worth and where does that come from? 
Mm, that's so interesting. Like yeah. People often just say, oh, I have a jealousy problem. But no, they probably have an anger problem or an insecurity problem yeah. or a depression. Fear of, fear or of or abandonment. Fear of abandonment. Yeah. And so many things. Mm-hmm. It's too broad. Well, competition, I think, is a big one. Competition, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to my next question. And this was sort of an unspoken arc throughout the book. But I was fascinated by how you started out being jealous and you were comparing yourself to other women. And then, you know, as you transitioned to having multiple relationships, it no longer even seemed to occur to you to compare yourself Mm -hmm. to other women. And so do you think the more you defied your jealousy, the more you leaned into the very thing that caused your jealousy, the less jealous or rather the more confident you became? It's kind of like the jealousy melted away because I was focused on the roots underneath it. You know, mm. once I once I realized that I had a self-worth problem, then anytime I felt jealous, I would ask, oh, okay, so what do I not feel worthy around then? Mm. Like, do I not feel worthy of my partner's love even? And I'm pushing them away with jealousy. Like, that's kind of a common pattern with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it feels really glib to say that, that that emotion disappeared kind of quickly once I could identify the roots of it. But that really is what it feels like for me. Which is not to say like the emotions that are underneath that, those stick around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like those are trade. the ones that I work on. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find that you were actually able to flip jealousy on its head and get some kind of enjoyment or pleasure out of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, Charlene, what you were talking about with, you know, by chapter six in the book, I'm talking about helping my partner flirt with other people and feeling so excited at getting to watch him meet other people and get attention from other people. Like once I realized there was a self-worth thing, I started to anchor in my sense of connection with my partner instead of questioning my connection with my partner. Mm-hmm. And so like all of the other relationships that we embarked upon and flirtations and all of that, like that then started to feel exciting in the same way that when you go out with a friend and they're mm-hmm. having success meeting somebody to date, like that's exciting to watch. Right. Yeah. And I, and I got to really see my partner through other people's eyes by watching what they paid attention to and Mm. really appreciate him in, in different ways. Yeah. I could totally see that. (laughs) There have been times where Andy's at a bar with friends or something and he's like, Oh, we we were chatting with these girls. And I'm like, I'm like, what do they look like? What were you talking about? (laughs) And it's not necessarily like it's going to go anywhere, but it's like, you, you do get to see your partner through the through well, a lens that has sort of, I don't want to say it's faded with time. No, no, it has faded. I think the otherness is really something you should embrace. Mm. I mean, the otherness is important, I think, in relationships. Otherwise, you become like really enjoyable furniture. Yeah, to some yeah. degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No offense. Yeah. <laughs> But but really familiar and comfortable. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, th- with the, um, with the, especially watching other people flirt with my partner thing, the thing that's so exciting about that is then I'm also watching like what the other person is doing and what his response is. And I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how she's pulling that out of him. And now I get to try that too. Right. And mm. so I, it was like, I got to use my jealousy as this tool to figure out like, in what ways do I want to reignite my own connection? with my partner? And in what ways do I want to try to be more playful, be more flirtatious with us? Mm-hmm. Okay. So oh interesting. Gosh, you give great answers yes. and they're so concise. So we are, we are already moving on to, well, actually one of the questions was what advice would you give to someone who wants to explore these facets of themselves, but jealousy is holding them back? I think you already answered it. 
you know, see what is beneath it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that brings us to open relationships. You and your partner, Jordan, seemed extremely open and communicative throughout the entire process. And not only did you tell each other who you were seeing and when, you even began dating the same woman and formed a triad. What made you to go the route of I want to know everything versus I think the equally common or possibly even more common route of I don't want to know anything. Yeah. I mean, I think tackling jealousy and figuring out what that looked like for each of us was at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. I I have met plenty of other folks who go the total opposite way and they have multiple relationships going on. And those relationships are all to a degree siloed from each other and they don't really you know, connect and and bond over the other relationships that they're having. But for me and my partner, it really was like that became part of our bond at that time. That became part of the way that we were expressing ourselves as friends. And I don't, I mean, we certainly had conversations about like, what do you want to know and what do you not want to know? And what's funny is before we started doing it, I thought I was going to be a, I don't want to know person. And I told Mm. my partner that I was like, go ahead and like, try things out. Don't tell me, just tell me if you're going to do it, that's all the data that I need. And like, otherwise I'm shutting this down. Cause I, I thought that I couldn't deal with like imagining what was happening or, you know, I thought that I couldn't deal with the mental game. That's very easier said than done. Oh yeah. 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 It's like, it's like someone says, Oh, this cheese smells so bad. You're like, Oh, I don't want any part of that. Of course you want a part of it. You have to smell the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is how I feel about a a certain Uh, cheese. (laughs) Okay. Continue. Emily. (laughs) Well, what we discovered over time was like, both me and my partner are very sensitive people. And so if something else was going on in another partnership, we could tell if that was like underneath our own interactions. And so it was almost like there's, it's, we both felt safer and we both felt more connected by sharing in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I think that's, that's partly us, right? Like everybody has to find their own dynamic and what works for them. Mm. I do think I would fall in the same camp. I've got to say the I don't want to know people like I respect that. But Mm. for me, information is everything. Even if it hurts, I would rather know it. So that's it's not like this is worth anything. But I personally would want to know everything. Yeah, I I, I admire the strength of someone who doesn't want to know and sticks to it. But in the same way, it feels not exploratory. Like it feels more adventurous Mm -hmm. to know. It feels like a life unexamined if you don't Yeah, it's more like self-preservational, but it's not like I imagine it brought you and Jordan. I have to do this every time. You and Jordan closer, (laughs) correct? It did. Yeah, Yeah. it did. Yeah, Yeah. just saying. But to each their own. I, I feel like... Nine out of 10 of my friends would be like, oh, I wouldn't want to know. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you guys ever get into fights about like, was there ever a spark that set up a fight, even though you guys had this really good open channel? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. of course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're not um, superwoman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think some of the, uh, usually the fight content was around like 
me because I I think I'm the more um, I'm the more impulsive of the two of us. And so sometimes I would just follow my sense of like fun and playfulness into situations that were not great. And so some of our conflict was around like him not trusting another person that I was starting to connect Ah, with or me having moved really fast uh, mm-hmm. when he wasn't comfortable, you know, all really legitimate concerns. And, and all of that really is again, sorting out like, what is the, what is the relationship going to look like? Sure. And how do you, how do you manage and deal with a partner that's going to work differently in other relationships than you do? You know, we had to really learn that about each other. That's so interesting. Okay. So in the book, you describe a quote, anxiety I felt over having to one day choose a particular kind of life to live and how my choice would mean the death of everything else that could have been. Hmm. I mean, this one got out of mind. Charlene like basically shook me out of a nap to tell me that line. (laughs) Yeah. You know, how much of your decisions do you think stemmed from that desire to live life to the fullest? Or do you think it was simply a desire to explore your sexuality? Oh, certainly both. Um, and probably the the desire to explore sexuality was at the heart of it. Mm. I think, though, that this, this fear that if I choose one path in life, I'm shutting everything else off, like that is really what drives my impulsivity, for example, right? Mm. Like I spend so much time overthinking what it is that I'm going to do and what it is that I want. And then, uh, and then eventually a breaking point happens and I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to go for it <laughs> um, <laughs> for better or for worse. So hard you know? to this. Yeah. <laughs> As I went, so I went on the bachelor like eight years ago and it was an impulsive, you only live once. Yeah. Like this is totally outside of my comfort zone and not at all what anyone in my life would expect of me. Jump but, in. and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll go on the bachelor. I'll do this crazy thing. So I totally relate to what you're saying. Sorry. I, I, I interrupted your answer. Well, and look at how it turned out, right? I mean, like, that's the thing is the experiences that we eventually choose shape everything that comes next. And that's both really amazing and incredibly terrifying if you're trying to, like, plan out what the future is going to hold. Man plaids and God laughs, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the saying, I'm going to butcher this saying, but isn't there a saying that sort of goes, the reality is always less scary than your fears? Always. to it. That's, I mean, the proverbial jumping in the water. It's, Which, that's it, jumping from a height into water. Is it less bad than you imagine? Because I it's imagine always that, less bad. Oh, I imagine that hurting. Well, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, I disagree. I, it, it still feels bad to me. Oh. <laughs> that was a bad example, Andy. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but in general, I, I do think there is truth in that. Yeah. Like, I imagine, like this, like your story is, like the choices you make and the choices you guys make together, I think sounds super daunting, but I imagine once you sort of rip off that first Band-Aid, not only are you like, oh, that wasn't as hard or scary as I thought it would be, but actually I'm proud of myself. To a degree, yeah. You know, I I struggle with the pride piece because there is... you know, you've read the book. I eventually Mm -hmm. make a mess of everything, right? And and I'm not proud of that. but, But I recognize now that the struggles that I had and the conflicts that I created in my relationships created the exact hurdles that I needed to work on, right? Like I was really stuck, for example, in not being able to really identify within myself what it was that I wanted, especially around my sexuality. And I was really stuck in um, 
never wanting to create conflict with my partner. And, you know, my partner and I joke all the time that one reason we've stayed together so long is that we never fight. And that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that is uh, nice, but also not a good thing if there are things worth fighting about. And so we really learned, like, we learned the skills of how to both create conflict and then repair from mm. there. And that has made us so, so much stronger mm. for sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go on a little tangent, but actually the, we have an episode coming out today, a Q&A, and actually the question I'm about to reference, I ended up cutting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was about moving in with a partner. Someone someone wrote in and was like, oh, my partner and I are going to move in after a year and a half slash two years. And what are the things we should discuss? And she linked out this list of questions that they were discussing, and it was like 40 <laughs> questions about <laughs> about everything from things that I think you should discuss, like finance to... To little things like who's going to keep track of your social calendar, who's going to pick up packages, like sort of things that we started laughing, honestly. Yeah, it was extreme overthinking. Yeah. And it was sort of like, you're going to learn so much about your partner in th like just in the journey. You, you don't necessarily mm -hmm. need to have it all sorted out before you even embark on it. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think is the most common misconception about open relationships? What myth would you like to dispel? Oh, boy. <laughs> you don't have to leave it at one if you don't want. <laughs> so many. No, I definitely want to answer that question. I just, uh, I don't know if I could pick just one. I think the one that that comes to top of mind, this isn't maybe necessarily so much a myth as it is just a... Um, like Assumption. a cultural thing that happens around these discussions is I always get afraid to bring up my past with open relationships because I know the first thing that people are going to be thinking about is sex, not mm -hmm. relationships. Right. right. And so I think the myth is that like folks who want and create multiple relationships in their lives they do it because they're they're much more driven by sex than other people. Mm -hmm. And I do not think that is true at all. Mm. Um, and I also think that it would be really awesome if we can sort of shift to talking about relationships in general in the same way that we talk about marriages or any other kind of more normalized version of, of creating relationship structure. Mm. Let's say someone hears that answer and is like, well, if it's not about sex, what is it about? I have my partner. I have the companionship. So what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. I would say it's about, um, it's about freedom and choice to a, to a degree that, mm. that for me, what choosing open relationships was really about was deciding that we weren't going to just follow reset standards around how our relationship was going to run. Like when you start an open relationship, the degree of communication required and the degree of transparency and the degree of like soul seeking to understand what you really want is so, so high. And I had not, I had not put that same amount of effort into my own self-knowledge before mm. this. And so going into an open relationship you know, it's about having other people in my life. It's about having deeper relationships in general, but it's also about deciding how I'm going to design the way that I want all of that to look rather mm. than going by what, what is normal or what other people would expect from me. Mm. Yeah. That reminds me of a part in the book where 
Your therapist was like, it is normal. Yes. <laughs> okay. So one of the most striking parts of your story in my eyes was how timid you were at the beginning of this book. You even describe your mind as, I, I don't know if I have the quote right, but heterosexually conditioned. Mm -hmm. And then the transition from conventional and unsure seeming woman to someone who I think, you know, in our culture would be deemed as sexually adventurous and even mm -hmm. wild. It had a, like a movie like arc to it, honestly. So given your own hesitation at the beginning, what advice would you give to one partner who wants to open things up when the other partner is deeply monogamous? Is it worth bringing up? Oh, yeah. Hell yes, it's worth bringing up. Um, it's always worth bringing up because again, it's not a conversation necessarily about the sex you want to have or the people you want to be in a relationship with. It's a conversation about what you think and feel and desire. And those things, I think if you're not bringing that to the table in your partnership, like then what, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Mm, right. Um, yeah. And it's, it can be so scary, especially when you know that some desire that you have could change the game of what you're doing and change how your partner thinks and feels about you or thinks and feels about your relationship. But that's why, you know, earlier when I said the thing we really learned was like how to create conflict and then repair from that. I was so scared to have all of these conversations before we really broke this open and change the rules and, and presets of our relationship. And now we we're back to being in a closed relationship, but I don't at all feel, um, I don't feel scared to talk to my partner about so many things now. Like I'm, I'm so much willing to bring more of myself to the table. Hmm. Okay. I didn't want to spoil the book, but you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you did it for us. Yeah. You did it. You gave for away me. the ending. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I, I love that you did that because I do, I did have a few questions based on that, but I, I want to put a pin in them for now. Do you believe one way open relationships can work? One way, meaning one partner who, yes, who dates one, other people and yeah. one who doesn't. I'm sure they can uh, with the right people, with the right communication that said, I, I know some folks in my circle who've tried it and weren't successful with it. So um, it's sort of like I live out hope for that dream, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't yet seen the people who, who've made it possible. Yeah. Yeah. Can I'm Sorry. No, I mean, unless the the partner who's not engaging in it is really turned on by jealousy, I don't see how that's anything but selfishness, in my opinion. Oh, well, hmm. I mean, there could be there are all sorts of reasons that people start creating that kind of format, right? Like one person has a higher sex drive and the other person has a lower one is a really common example of that kind of setup. And um, and I think I think the thing that the people in that relationship have to be really careful of is, are they sacrificing the way that they feel inside for the structure that they think is going to make the relationship work, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like it only works if they're all still bringing their whole selves to the table. Do you think then that's most likely the reason why in your experience from what you've seen, it hasn't worked? I think so. I think I've seen situations where the the partner who was dating other people felt like they needed to downplay those connections or not talk about relationships that they were forming. And I've seen situations where the partner who wasn't dating people 
felt like they couldn't talk to their partner about their jealousy or other emotions that they're experiencing. Right. And so in, in my view, and this is just from the outside, right. I'm (laughs) sure on the inside, it feels really different, but in my view uh, with friends that confided in me, it really just looked like they weren't bringing everything to the table that, that they were feeling. Mm -hmm. And thus like, for for fear of the dynamic falling apart, but then the dynamic falls apart anyway because it doesn't fit how you really feel. It's such an imbalance. I mean, it just feels it, it like nature will eventually level that. Yeah, it does feel... It's something about it does feel just unfair. Yeah. Like even if you're not really interested, it almost feels like you should just to make just to I, even it I a agree. bit. So what advice, therefore, would you give to someone who is in a relationship is totally content with monogamy and then their partner comes to them and they're like, and says, I want an open relationship. And they're like, mayday, mayday. What would you tell them? Sorry, I'm, I'm having, solve it. I'm yeah, having yeah, you analyze the same question from all angles. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't try to solve it on your own. Oh, so you think like talk to a therapist, maybe go to couples therapy, that kind of thing. I, that is certainly one route. And I think a, a particularly helpful one. Uh, I was in therapy throughout you know, I think anytime you add complexity to your life, therapy and the support to deal with that is a really good choice. But I also mean like friends who, who won't necessarily vilify the experiment that you want to run in your Mm -hmm. life, right? Like if all of your friends are monogamous and you're, you think you might be monogamous fully, but your partner says they want to change something, you might need advice of people who are compassionate and accepting of that so that you can see both sides and all the possibilities. Right. And so I think for us, it was that community of people who were already doing the kinds of relationships that we were thinking of trying, like being able to lean on them and talking about their experiences was so very helpful, sometimes Mm -hmm. even more helpful than a therapist who may or may not, you know, have experience dealing with those issues. So do you think if you had been in a community where that didn't exist, do you think any of this would have ever happened? Let's say all your friends on both sides are monogamous. I think I would have shut down. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I couldn't have seen the possibilities, I would have, I would have just gone back to the status quo and, and decided that it was too risky of an experiment to run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are literally studying at a university. I mean, it's such an unfair advantage. (laughs) 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 <laughs> no, it's so true. It's if you have that community around you. Yeah. As I was reading the book, I was like, okay, this is really, you know, it's the norm in her social circles. And certainly it seemed in the two cities that you were splitting your time between, especially Austin. It would seem, it seems like Austin yeah. is like where shit happens. Be, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> yeah. And it also, of course, you had Jordan who broached it for the first time. And so just, you know, I could see how that would, it would ease it, yeah. ease you into it. Certainly. Better. I mean, if you were yeah. deep in the heart of Texas and you just decided one day, I'm going to do this, it would be a little difficult. <laughs> do you agree? What if, well, yeah, yes. And what Nothing against Texas, is, by the way. <laughs> oh, I, I have I lots think, of things I against think. Texas. <laughs> okay. I just have to say that for, uh, you know, podcast reasons. Yeah, I think too it's easy maybe to look at my example and say, oh, well, she had she had people around her who were already practicing that. I have though also found that the more vulnerable and open I am in conversations with friends, the more people come out of the woodwork 
who've also tried those things and not joined a formal community of, mm. you know, to talk about polyamory and, and all of that. But mm-hmm. I would say most of the people that I know have tried with some form of open relationship or some form of, um, of experimentation. And a lot of people don't talk about it until somebody goes first. So it's so true. It's so true. (laughs) And just for the record, for anyone who has, I mean, I think a lot of people will not have read the book, but they will after this episode. How long have you and Jordan been together to date? 15 years. Okay. So going into your story, it became rapidly apparent that emotion and time management were part and parcel with maintaining multiple relationships. You even describe in sometimes excruciating detail your struggle to focus on your own needs when juggling multiple loves. Do you think this logistical toll is always present with open relationships? I can say that it's always present for me. And it is, it's one of the primary reasons that, uh, that we're in a closed relationship now is that while I really loved being able to expand and deepen connections with people. I also realized that in that time period, which was a couple of years where I was in serious relationships with other people, it's like the time that I spent was with one of my three partners and that was it. I didn't really see friends very often. Mm -hmm. I didn't spend much time alone, which man, when I check in with myself, <laughs> I need a lot of time alone, like a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have to um, admit, yeah, as an yeah. introvert, and I also like spent. I love spending time alone. Yeah, like when Andy goes too. out at night, I'm like, bye. Have the house. I get be to pretend. Too happy. I, I get to pretend I live alone for an yeah, evening. That's nice. But I have to admit, when I was reading the book, I, that almost seemed to strike me the most was the time consumption. It just mm-hmm. seemed so time consuming. Yeah. Tiring. <laughs> it is. At least it was in the way that I had set it up. I mm. I have friends who have uh additional partners who see them far less frequently, right? Like a friend who lives with their primary partner or nesting partner and then sees another partner once every couple of months, right? So it really depends on how you set that up. I think at that particular time in my life, I was really looking for deeper relationships and particularly deeper relationships with women. Cause I think I was tapping into something about, uh, my own femininity and really coming into closer contact with that. And so I needed more time with those mm. people. And unfortunately just uh, realized that my time got really strained, uh, when I prioritized that. If you had to answer what's easier, monogamy or polyamory? Oh, <laughs> it depends on how you're wired and it depends on what you want, right? You have to answer. Um, yeah. I mean, I, for, for me and for my lifestyle, monogamy is, uh. is easier and it is the better fit for me now, mm-hmm. but it certainly wasn't the better fit for me a few years ago. So I've gone through different seasons and I've, I've changed a lot and developed a lot and I don't expect monogamy will necessarily be the answer always till the end either so mm. well it's, yeah. it's it feels like a sport like you said seasons it feels to me like a sport like you have your prime playing career and the most energy and willingness to try new things and then you just have yeah. to retire at some point but you're tired i mean you're just not <laughs> performing at peak anymore i mean it seems like this not to say this is like a young person's game but it does feel like fatigue mental emotional and, and physical and logistical 
has to come into play at some point. I mean, it's hard to imagine yeah. going to the end of life being in a fully open a polyamorous relationship. It's just, well, it seems almost physically impossible. Yeah, to the extent she was, though, because I <laughs> <laughs> physically was. And, and only because, I mean, you were not dating these other people casually. And I right. love how it was so defined at the onset of each relationship. Is this casual or do you want something more serious? The level of communication. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was because it was with women. Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't think that hurt. Mm-hmm. But I just loved how communicative it was. And it's like, what categories? Yeah. Is this casual or not? And in these cases that we're talking about, it was not casual. So that is time consuming. Sure. Okay, mm-hmm. one more question on the open relationship thing and then we'll move on. Let's say a couple has agreed to open their relationship in the interest of satisfying their desires. They don't know anyone in their social circle, at least no one that they know of who engages in this lifestyle. What tips would you give them for just dipping their toe into those waters? Yeah. I mean, I'm always a big fan of having knowledge precede experience. I am a big book geek. Uh, I've obviously devoted my career to that. And so I like to study before I go into gameplay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there are lots of really, really great resources. Strangely, the resource that I most loved for myself was the work of Esther Perel, mm-hmm. who has written several books. Primarily, she focuses on uh, cheating, not on polyamory. Mm-hmm. But what she talks about in terms of the emotional arcs that the people who cheat and the people who Uh, have been cheated on, go through, like reading through that helped me really understand my own emotions much better and helped me understand what kind of communication I needed to come to the table with. Um, So I highly recommend her books, even though they are not about polyamory. There are also lots of polyamory resources like the book Polysecure. There are all sorts of attachment (laughs) things you can study. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I, I think getting started with books and honestly, getting yourself out there to meet friends before you meet dates is is a really helpful way to, again, just start building a community of people that you can start to have these conversations with and lean on because you're going to need people when things get hard and when conflict comes up. You're going to need to bounce off of people the things that are going on with you. So, yeah. Okay, so let's say you've done all of those things and you're like, okay, we want to bring in a third or we want to just explore this. What then? Have clear conversations about uh, what that's going to look like, what each of you want it to look like and be really clear about what differences you might have, right? Like when you really dig down, you might recognize that one partner desires something different from the other and trying to figure out, okay, what what is the path that feels good enough to both of us that we can run that experiment? Um, you know, what you said about so much communication, that's not just because it was women in the relationship. Like that's just because (laughs) these kinds of relationships are so complex that if you Mm. do not talk about them, they, all those little things explode later into arguments or, you know, (laughs) or whatever. So yeah, as much communication as you can is, is really good. You just literally stole my coffee. I'm sorry. (laughs) It didn't seem like it was being used. I'm the only one that that made a coffee. And then I saw him sipping it. And I was like, are you not making your own coffee? And he's like, you never finish your coffee. And I'm like, okay. And then he's been sipping my coffee. And finally, just now while you're answering, he put the coffee back in front of him instead of in front of me. (laughs) This is mine now. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's amazing. Yes. You've adopted my deep rooted problem. How kind of you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I want you to be super literal, so excuse this <laughs> next question, but and I and I ask on behalf of our shandies because this actually did come up. It's like, where do you yeah. find these people? Do you find them online? Yeah. Like, how do you find the person that you want to yeah. invite? Uh, same way that you date anybody, right? Like going out to public places. Um, I, I found online dating to be really helpful, mostly because I was more confident just putting myself out there and saying really clear on a profile. I am looking, I'm already in a partnership. I am looking for other people who are cool with that. Um, that was a really hard thing for me to say out loud to another person in person. And I found that I would sometimes like go to a bar and flirt with a person, but then I would always stop it because I was too nervous to say out loud the next part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so online dating was helpful for me from that perspective of just allowing me to be more clear. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course comes with all of the pitfalls of online dating, which is you just have to sort through lots and lots of, of people to find the people that connect with you. But the plus side is if you live in a reasonably large metropolitan area, there's probably actually a lot of people online who are looking for open relationships. Um, mm-hmm. It really surprised me how many people um, I could find that I didn't know already, which was mm. cool. Okay. So we're going to move on to topic. Would you like some coffee? There's <laughs> like three drops left. So we're going to move on to topic number three, which was discovering sexuality. A common question from our Shandies when I teased that, you know, you discovered on this journey that you are queer and you began dating women, like seriously dating them. When and how did you realize you might not be 100% straight? And what would you say are the signs? Uh, oh, yeah. So the first time I kissed a girl, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not 100% <laughs> straight because that was just really fun. Um, <laughs> but there was also a little bit of revisionist history that went on where like, Once that door was opened, I started looking through my whole past and thinking, how long have I felt this way? And are there, are there times when I felt this way that I assumed I didn't things like uh, I'm going to get very, um, explicit for, for just a moment, things like high school locker rooms, right? Like I was always the person that like really averted my eyes and would not look around the room. And I thought it was because I was a prude, but, you know, looking back, it's really because I was attracted to the bodies around me and I didn't want anybody to see that on my face. Right. Mm. So I think that there's a degree of sometimes you have to mine it out of yourself, particularly if like me, um, you have a little bit of internal internalized heteronormativity or even homophobia, Uh, like I missed the signs inside of myself for a really long time. Um, And it was only when I honestly had the support of my partner and felt comfortable going there um, that, that then it was like full on. Yeah. I'm totally in. Mm. That's so interesting. It is. That's, uh, that's like mind blowing. Like I'm thinking about people in, I know who are so uncomfortable, like, Oh, I can't look at a naked man. I'm like, Oh yeah. Can you not look at a naked man? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so in the book, you describe a memory of being 18 and being struck by the lead singer of a band who happened to be a woman. And you're not sure if you just admire her, but then realize, quote, I didn't want to be her. 
I wanted her. I could tell by the way my eyes traveled across her waist. And then a page later, you say, quote, I didn't recognize then what I see so clearly now. You're queer, honey. Instead, I promptly got a boyfriend to erase the thought. (laughs) 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 I have to admit, I laughed. I laughed at that part. (laughs) So do you think some women confuse attraction with envy? So in this example, they Mm. perceive their draw to that woman's waist as envy of her waist versus finding her sexually attractive. I think for some women, sure, that was obviously the case in my experience. And now that I've opened up to friends about about this kind of thing, I'm finding that it's the case for a lot of people that I know also. So um, certainly I wouldn't speak for everybody. I don't think like all envy for other women mm. is attraction. attraction yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's funny you say that. I actually <laughs> added the word some. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I originally typed, do you think women? And I was like, got to add a some in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, the hard part is like, y- you are the only one who knows no one could possibly tell you that. No one could look at me standing there watching that show at 18 and watching that lead singer and be like, I'm pretty sure you're gay, right? Like right. I I had to figure that out within myself. So um, yeah, it makes it hard to speak for other people because we all have our own internal experience. Well, what advice would you give to someone then who is just wondering this about themselves, is secretly wonders if they're completely straight or if it's easier, what advice would you give your younger self on this topic? I mean, I'm wild now. So I would tell my younger (laughs) self, like, why don't you just go up and try to kiss that girl? (laughs) Um, Yeah, because when you're 18, 18, you can take all sorts of risks and everybody expects you to, you know, make a mess of your relationships and it's totally cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think, advice for someone who's older, like I didn't really come into my own in this way until my thirties. Um, and for me, it was having the support of my partner to know that I could essentially start experimenting in the way that I probably would have back in college, but didn't feel safe enough doing so. (laughs) It's so hard to offer advice because I know that for me, the transformative thing was actually acting on my desire, but Mm. I don't think that that you have to act on your desire to know that your desire exists. I just wasn't able to be sensitive enough to myself to see my desire first before acting, if that makes sense. It does. It definitely does. So I think first steps that someone could take if they're not sure, but curious is to find ways to flirt with the idea. So things like If you're in a partnership, obviously you'd want to check and make sure that this is okay with your partner, but like try flirting with a woman and see what it feels like. Try talking to friends who are gay or queer about what their attraction feels like, and then see if that's the way that it feels in your body too. I think just finding ways to explore it, even if you don't ever intend to like sleep with women, um, but just finding ways to, to dip your toe in the water and start to open the door to your curiosity can be Mm. helpful. Do you think it's a shame to not explore it? Let's say someone's like, I feel a part of me feels this way, but it's sort of like an uphill battle, like exploring that, like monogamy, straight monogamy is easier, or rather, we're not even talking about monogamy. Let's say just being straight is easier. I don't have to come out. I don't have to talk to my family Mm -hmm. about it, all that stuff. How 
tragic do you personally think it is to never explore it? I think if, for if at me, all. yeah, for me, it would have been really tragic. Uh, and to be super clear, there are costs to everything, right? Mm. So it's not like exploring your own sexuality, particularly if you're already set up in a life that you love with a partner in a monogamous relationship, there are, there are costs to exploring that and deciding whether you're going to act on it. Right. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. For me, I think if I had known everything that was coming in the book that I wrote... (laughs) (laughs) If I had known that all that conflict was coming, I probably would have decided that the cost was too high and I didn't want to pay it. And I probably would have Mm. just gone back in my shell. But what I have discovered going through all of that is that I am so much more fully myself now. I know how to sit with myself and tap into not just my desire, but all of my different feelings in a way that I really couldn't or was resistant to before. I know how to communicate in in my relationships in a much deeper and more authentic way now. And so I wouldn't trade this fuller sense of self and fuller sense of freedom and choice and agency in my life for what I had before. So for me now on the other end, the cost is totally worth it. Mm. And I think, I think sometimes you have to just trust your gut on that one because lodging logicking your way through like, oh, what if this relationship falls apart because of my desire? Or what if this part has to change? Like that's too overwhelming to try to think through all the possibilities. Yeah. Mm. And, and I will say uh, um, many of the things in my life that I consider transformative and extremely valuable experiences were things that I would never do again if you paid me a million dollars. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> That's the funny takeaway from what she just. I said. know, but it, it's, no, it's, that's true. That's a succinct way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, no, it's funny. Yeah, because uh, I I perceived what she said as like, oh, it was yeah, it was difficult and it cost a lot, but at the same time, it was so worth it. And you're like, yeah, I would never do it again. Yeah, but there, it's worth it still. Yeah, no, yeah. it's true. That's it's the a good point. point. Yeah, I just wouldn't do it again. But yeah. I, I'm very happy I did it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good. It's a, it's, it's a paradox. It is. It's a delightful paradox. Okay, Emily, we're now in our fourth category, which is, I, I titled personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we're going to get personal. Yeah, yeah, personal. yeah. Yeah. Enough of this fluff. Let's ask some serious deep dives. Okay. So you sort of spoiled the ending. I, I didn't want to reveal that you two are now monogamous again, just in case. But I actually am so happy you did because I'm, I wanted to know if you two would ever embark on something like this again. And you, you sort of suggested that maybe you would. Yeah, possibly. yeah, I think so. Um, again, it just depends on what our lives are feeling like, what each of our desires are, you know, right now, the thing that I'm desiring most is the, the 
calm and slowness that's in my life right now. I mm-hmm. have a lot of space and ease and I am just really reveling in that. So, you know, this isn't a situation that I'm planning to change anytime soon, but like you said earlier, Andy, about, um, sometimes these things feel like a young man's game because you need so much energy to go through Mm -hmm. certain parts of your life. Like I imagine that at some point energy is going to build in me again, and I'm going to want to shake things up. Um, that's just, that's just how I am. And that's just what I've witnessed across my life. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But for now, this is feeling really, really great. Yeah. It could just be a matter of meeting that person too. Sure. Yeah. Like I mean, look at George Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's what you were thinking about. Oh, yeah. for sure. I always think about George Foreman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. I, know. I don't what either. Do you mean, of course. <laughs> oh. <laughs> On the George- my own. So no, <laughs> anyway, my point is George Foreman had a, had a decent career at 25 and then Muhammad Ali beat him and, and he basically retired forever, became a minister. And then to raise money for his church, he got back into boxing in his late thirties and became way more famous than he ever was in his prime in the seventies and eventually won the heavyweight title and started the George Foreman grill, which made him a couple of bucks. <laughs> So my point is, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> the boxing is secondary, but my point is there are second careers in the same yeah. sport. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's the takeaway. That was my takeaway. You know, we can make fun of the George Foreman grill, but that's the reason he's a household name in my opinion. So next question under personal <laughs> was a lot of people wanted to know if you, A, told your family, which I've, I've read your book, so I know you did, but also... B, extended family, did you get judgment? You know, what did that look like? And also, what put you so firmly in the camp of really wanting your parents to know, given I do think a lot of people wouldn't even consider trying to tell their parents this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did talk to my, I talked to my immediate family. I did not deliberately come out to any of my extended family. Although of course the book has now done that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but with my immediate family, I didn't talk to them about us being in an open relationship for, for years. I really only started to realize that I wanted to do that when I was in these more serious relationships. And I just realized that if I didn't talk about it, there was so much then that I was hiding of my life and the hiding felt really, um, honestly, it felt damaging to our connection because I wasn't talking about the trip that I had just gone on with my girlfriend. I was talking about it. Like I just went to a random place with a random person. And, and that is, that doesn't feel remotely true. Right. Mm. And so for me coming out to my family was about deepening those relationships and allowing them into more of my life. It was also really difficult and super awkward to talk about. Difficult not because of how my parents reacted or responded, but difficult because it caused me to um, really look clearly at all of the ways that I felt like this is a thing I should be hiding <laughs> mm. and and really have to grapple with like this again, like I said earlier, the open relationships are not about sex. They're about relationships for me anyway. Um, and 
and being able to approach a conversation around these are the relationships that I'm in, not the sex I'm having. Like it was really hard for me to shift my focus because I assumed that I knew what my parents were going to think. Mm. With extended family, that was actually really beautiful because I just released the book without saying anything in particular. I figured if they want to know, it's all in the book. Like they can obviously read what that journey was. And if they don't want to know, I don't care if they read the book, like we don't have to talk about any of this. Um, And I ended up getting reach outs from a few family members saying like, I'm so glad that you decided to be vulnerable about this because I've been through similar struggles and I feel like I know you better now. That was a really common relationship or a really common reaction from so many people, both family and like friends that I hadn't talked to in years. And so it ended up being really deeply connective in a really satisfying way. Oh, that's nice. That's so nice. I got to say the the part in the book where you do finally tell your father, I'm not going to spoil it, but I teared up. It was just really beautiful and does bring me back to the idea of you know, the idea of something can be more scary than the actual yeah. reality. Not to say that for some people no. that experience is not the so exact Thank opposite. you for saying that. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, I have two more questions for you, Emily, and then we're going to set you free. Knowing what you know today, what self-work would you suggest someone do before they attempt opening up their relationship? For me, it was being willing to come in contact with all of my different emotions. Um through therapy primarily, but I think there are so many modalities, meditation, um, all sorts of ways that you can do that. But the thing that shot me in the foot most often, the thing that created conflict when I was trying to have multiple relationships in my, in my life was not recognizing that a certain emotion was happening under the surface, you know, not Mm -hmm. recognizing, for example, when I was angry about something or not feeling like I could bring that up to a partner And so being able to really feel and name and sit with all of my emotions then helped me figure out how to name those to my partners and have clear conversations about them. And that's really, that is the key, I think, to having any, any success in any kind of relationship. Mm. Not, not to revisit my terrible George Foreman analogy, (laughs) but don't you feel like this open relationship and the fact that you had it for such a long period of time is kind of like, you know, putting a cat back in a bag, genie back in a bottle, those analogies. Like, don't you think that this has to kind of pop up at some point in your life with your partner again, or is it possible to just close it and just not think yeah, about it? It was again? a season and now it's over. I don't really think about it as being open or closed, which I know is a weird, a weird way to talk about that. I think about it as like, those were the desires that were running my life then. And those desires just aren't here with me right now. Um, I, I think in large part because the the energy that I put into forming romantic relationships with women, I've now been really deeply investing in intimate friendships with mm-hmm. with women. And so the intimacy and connection that I really got out of those partnerships, I'm still getting through my friendships. Um, and so that's the way that I'm choosing to invest in my energy right now. And that's what is feeling really good to me now. And yeah. So, so in summary, the genie (laughs) can be put back in the bottle. It's more like, ah, the door is still open. She's just not walking through it. 
Ah. Well, it's like the genie sits and waits until you you ask for something again. I guess, like, I just, I'm not really asking for anything. I think right you're, now. you're, you're, you're mixing metaphors again. I am. Yeah. Sorry, won't accept that. I'm, you know, it's a terrible habit for a writer. <laughs> uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. And I like my door analogy. I do. The door analogy we both like. Yeah. We've used that many times. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's not your, that's our analogy. <laughs> nice try. Okay, okay. <laughs> Emily Gindelsparger, thank you so very much for joining us today. I loved your book so much. I was really excited to meet you and your answers did not disappoint. This is great. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thank you so much for joining well, us. Pleasure is all mine. This was so much fun for me. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Ah. I mean, she was great. She was great. You know, I was a little nervous going into this one because I have four full pages yeah, of notes, like a lot. actual. I can see it. Yes. And sometimes when we go into these, I barely make a dent in them, depending on how they answer. Mm-hmm. And there, I had a lot of questions for her. So it was it's kind of tough. It's you don't know which ones to choose if oh, yeah. if the answer to each question is 10 minutes long or whatever. I love how she was able to answer so concisely, but it was still so meaningful yeah, you'd think with these really hard-hitting personal questions, there'd be a lot of meandering yeah, yeah. and like changing and digressions. Yeah, no. But she was right on point and succinct. Very impressive. Yeah, she answered like someone who has spent a lot of time reflecting. Yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, I already know the answer to that because I've spent hours of my life thinking about She's that already. She's a professional reflector. And I, maybe it's I'm making assumptions about her based on the book. But in the beginning of the book, she definitely seems more... Like I, I use the word timid. There's and she didn't stop mm-hmm. me when I said that, so I feel okay saying that. Oh, yeah. But there was sort of like a, a a fearfulness in her, and she never would have seen herself doing any of this stuff. No. And to the point where even when she at eighteen thought that she maybe was attracted to a girl, she was like, "Oh, so I promptly got a boyfriend yeah. to erase the thought." You know, I think that a lot of people can relate to that, and so it's that it, that starting point to me is what makes her memoir so interesting. Is that is that journey. I'm not saying it's easy what she's done, and I'm not saying in every culture or geographic location you can do what she's done, Mm -hmm. but she's lived life very well. Yes. I love that. I mean, talk about YOLO and FOMO and all the things. Yeah. All the acronyms. She's done all the the lows. All the O's. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's a certain, in my opinion, contentment to her because she has, like, she has this wealth of knowledge and experience and it feels very intentional that at this point in her life she's like oh i'm enjoying this quiet season of my life now mm-hmm. everything yeah. i want i have you know she's not haunted by as she said er- earlier in the book like these paths that weren't discovered or you know the deaths of all yeah. the lives she can't live right She's done a lot with what she had at her disposal and i think that that gives you a sense of peace and satisfaction and contentment. I love the honesty, too, of the fact that she probably wouldn't do it over again. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know if she really meant it like that. I thought it was more like if she knew then what she knows now, she would probably look at it and think the cost was too high and not do it. Right. It was, it was a very uh, a thoughtful way of saying if like <laughs> I had a gun to my head right now, I would not go back in time and do that whole thing Yeah, but, again. but she's it's the reason I'm I'm sorry I'm pouncing on that is because her younger self was more fearful and therefore right. knowing all this stuff at that 
point in her life, it would be too daunting. So it's sort of like, right. It's a metaphysical question. It really is. It's hard to really pinpoint how you would approach that, but I think she's happy it happened, Yes, but wouldn't have the energy or or desire to relive it. At this point, but the knowledge and wisdom that she's acquired is priceless. Of course. Yes. That's the takeaway. (laughs) That's the takeaway. (laughs) I'm glad she's spoiled the ending because to me, that was sort of a shocking ending. I wasn't expect, I was expecting the book would end with the at least one of the girlfriends still in the picture or you know they they were still seeing other people something and so to yeah. go from they really it was they really opened their relationship it was very open and then they just like transitioned back and it's a testament to her writing that she can have an ending that's right back where she started yet the whole piece is really great to read yeah no it's so true it's like Technically, she's in the same relationship she was in, right. or she's in the same relationship she was in at the beginning of the book. It's the same guy. Same thing, yeah. Same partner, Jordan. <laughs> Jordan. We got to have Jordan I, on the pod. Yeah, I just love Jordan, Jordan every time. Really, you know what it is? It's all about the journey, not the destination. Always. That's what the conclusion is. Ooh. That's it. That this is the ultimate journey versus destination. Destinations, no one no destinations over. By the time you get there, it's over. It's Mm. already done. Anyway, I think we can wrap there, Andy. I think we can. If you enjoyed what you heard today, you know what we will ask of you, and that is to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Leave us Apple and Spotify. Podcast ratings and reviews. Tell your friends Mm -hmm. and generally do all of the things you would do to support a podcast you enjoy. Again, the book is Please Make Me Love Me by Emily Gindelsparger. I just love this photo. The photo's great. It's so like, ugh. Is that a photo? Yeah. Well, it's kind of, it looks sort of like a 3D printed heart, but it has pins in it. It's very graphic. It's a very literal heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting choice. It's true. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Dear Shandy. Bye-bye. Dear Shandy. Ah, mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.